The Andrew Carter Podcast, the best of Montreal's number one morning show. Hear Andrew live weekdays, 5.30 to 9 on CJAD 800. Donald Trump got some bad news today, too. According to Forbes magazine, Donald Trump's wealth is down $800 million from last year. He's, he's only worth $3.7 billion now. And I'll tell you something, Mexico is going to pay for it. They are going to... But the good news is, while his net worth may be down, his self-worth is at an all-time high, and that's... That's true. Hi, Dan Cook. Good morning, Andrew. So what happened? So in 2015, Forbes magazine reported that Donald Trump was worth $4.5 billion, but they just updated their numbers. Over the course of one year, the Donald's net worth fell by $800 million to $3.7 billion. However, the drop was not due to his presidential campaign. Forbes says real estate in New York has softened. They analyzed 28 buildings and 18 lost value, which includes Trump Tower, 40 Wall Street, and Mar-a-Lago, which is in Florida. The Donald says he is worth $10 billion. Forbes says $3.7 billion. And an editor from Forbes has an absolutely fantastic answer. Quote, we have a rule at Forbes. It's called the Trump rule. Whatever Donald Trump tells us, we generally think he's worth about a third of that. That's been true for about 30 years. Uh, last week we spoke with a woman named... Um Jane Schreibman. She mm-hmm. lives in the Chelsea neighborhood of uh, of New York's in Manhattan, where that uh, and she was actually the one that found the pressure cooker bomb. Oh boy! The second one. Yes. Um, but she made reference in our conversation to the two men who uh, initially uh, must have found this bomb. She was the one who called police. But here's what she said: Do police say that the bomb would have gone off if they hadn't have? Well, that's really interesting. The bomb, what they found out is the bomb was originally in a duffel bag. Right. And two men came along and took it out of the duffel bag. And they think when they took it out, they dislodged one of the wires. And and disarmed it by mistake. So she found the pressure cooker that was just lying there on the on the ground with the wires sticking out, and police for the longest time were not able to locate these two guys, but now they have. Exactly. So this happened on West 27th. Uh, the two men opened up the bag, they removed the bomb, and then took the travel bag. It looks like it's a Louis Vuitton bag, but it's actually a fake Louis Vuitton bag. Police have been trying to track down both men, and yesterday afternoon they were finally identified. Their ages are 35 and 42. They are pilots with Egypt Air and were in Manhattan for work. The FBI does not believe the men were involved with the bombing. They just wanted to lift this bag, but they would like the bag back. Plus, they'd also like their fingerprints so they can... Uh, rule them out. They've got a couple of fingerprints on the unexploded bomb. The FBI has submitted a request to the Egyptian government, and so far, both men have not spoken with the FBI. Uh, The diabetes price war, what's going on here? So Novo Nordisk is the world's largest manufacturer of insulin. The company has offices in 75 countries, and they sell products in 180 countries. But there's trouble at Novo Nordisk. Number one, they lost a major U.S. contract. Number two, there's an insulin price war. And number three, insurance companies are using cheaper alternatives. Novo Nordisk believes the current situation will not change until at least 2018. So effective immediately, Novo Nordisk is laying off 1,000 employees. Half will be in Denmark. And unfortunately, some of the cuts include research and development. All right. How many... um 
I'm I'm just looking up how many grams in a cup. How many grams in a cup? So oh this is boy, about... that's a question for Doug Lennox. No, no. This, so this is about a half a cup of cocaine that this yeah. guy uh, was looking for. What did he do? So this happened near Century Link Field in Seattle, Washington. This is where the Seattle Seahawks play. The allegations are a 19-year-old was walking his dog. He put down his briefcase and forgot to pick it up. A passerby saw a random briefcase on the sidewalk and brought it to the police station. And when police opened it up, they found 154 grams of cocaine, 50 diazepam pills, marijuana, a cell phone, and the 19-year-old's ID card. However, police did not have to track him down. The 19-year-old asked an officer if they found his missing briefcase. He claimed it had important documents inside. Then he was charged with possession of narcotics with intent to distribute. Yeah. So he didn't actually ask for his cocaine back. He just wanted his briefcase. He wanted his briefcase back, which just happened to contain cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> and Michael Kane is standing by at the Business News Network. Good morning, morning uh, Michael. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, Laurentian Bank, we talked about this uh, last week. Um, Laurentian Bank plans to abolish uh, 300 jobs, still with 10% of their workforce. Yeah, it's going to be by attrition, though. It's not like they're going to go out and wholesale fire everybody. Uh, 50 uh, branches closing, so that's a third of what Laurentian has, and they're just joining the parade. Uh, RBC, uh, uh, BMO, back in May, Bank of Montreal cut 1,800 positions. Uh, So they're downsizing, and and it's all the same story as we were talking about last week with RBC. Uh, There are two things at work here. Uh, one is the move to digital banking, uh, and the other thing is um, the people still want personal interaction, okay? Somebody at Laurentian had proposed uh, getting rid of tellers altogether, but of course the union didn't like that idea, neither did the labor, uh, labor people. Uh, but people, you know, people who are in borrowing money and retail banking, personal retail banking is still a very strong part of the big six banks. Um, they want that personal interaction, but they also want the convenience of um, doing it electronically. Uh, RBC has started to open these little boutique uh, banks. Uh, and, and you know what a, what a positive thing is about this for the bank is that if you are opening a smaller location, you can get a better location, right? Uh, RBC opened a bank right on, uh, on Young Street right. in downtown Toronto and another one on Church. And uh, so they're, they're getting good retail locations, uh, and that's saving the money, too. Yeah, and let's face it. I mean, we don't need—the uh, the banks don't need to look like, uh, you know, old-style old train stations anymore like they no. like they a- have. Hey, and just to as a sidebar here, this is a problem in Alberta. During the boom years, the, the oil companies, or actually all the companies out there, were opening big, lavish offices, uh, taking advantage of the boom. Now— the vacancy rate in Calgary is something like 25% because nobody can afford those big, lavish offices uh, when there isn't a boom on. So this makes sense on a fiscal basis for the banks. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, we know it as OPEC, mm-hmm. um, what, what a decision they made yesterday is really helping us out here in Canada, is it not? Well, not so much. Oh, okay. Actually, um, sources told the Reuters news agency that they would be cutting... 740,000 barrels per day, and they would make that official at their November meeting. Okay, OPEC lies all the time, okay? <laughs> they, oh, okay. They, they misdirect. I mean, they, they say they're going to keep the quotas at this level or that level, and they, and they 
over, overproduce because they're going to take advantage of if prices start to go up. And uh, Oppenheimer analyst uh, Fadel Gay, who is uh, highly respected in the industry, he pointed out when the prices start to go up, uh, they, uh, you know, we're going to they're going to start overproducing again to take advantage of the oh, higher prices. I see. So that just has the effect of driving the price back down. And even with the two dollar and thirty eight cent rise in oil prices yesterday, we're only back to where we were like last week. Right. But it also helped lift the, the Canadian dollar by a half a cent or so. It did. Uh, and the loony is flat this morning. Um, the uh, the futures are indicating a fairly flat to slightly positive open on the markets. Uh, can't really see much else that's going on there. And as far as Donald Trump goes and that $800 million, did you know that he lives in the Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue? And he's in the penthouse, and the penthouse is three stories high. <laughs> so he does. Re- it's not an ivory tower. It's more like a gold tower. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But- oh, and coming up at 7.05, I will tell you who the latest billionaire uh, is that's backing Hillary Clinton. Really? Yeah. Oh, there's, that's- a, there's a handful of billionaires that like her. Inter- interesting. It's the 29th of September, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis is 81 years old today. Remember Andrew Dice Clay, the comedian? He's 59. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, here we go. Terrafolia flowers could be yours. All you have to do is send your birthday or special celebration to uh, cjad.com. Basically, celebrations at cj80.com is the exact uh, web address. And you know what happens? You get uh, you could win terrafolia flowers like this. How could we not give them to Boris and Natasha? Haley sent this in. Happy 40th wedding anniversary to Boris and Natasha. Happy 18th birthday wishes to Jared Beauregard-Smith, 18 years old. Uh, 18 years ago today, you changed our lives forever. You're an adult now, but you'll always be our little boy. Uh, so proud of you, Cindy and Jim Smith. And happy belated 60th birthday, Dave, from Jenny. All right, 654, Miles is on the line from uh, beautiful Dorvalium by the lake. Hello, Miles. How you doing, Andrew? Who gets a Thursday off? How come today's your day off? Um, no reason in particular. Oh, okay. What do you, what do you got planned? Uh, nothing. Good for you. Uh, Eric Church is a country music superstar, as you know, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got tickets to his concert coming to the Bell Center. Uh, September, let's see. No, the tickets go on sale September 30th. The The concert is March 4th. Can you wait? Uh, no, I can't. Too okay. far away. Okay. Well, I, we can take someone else if you don't want to wait. <laughs> uh, we're playing It's Elementary today, Miles. Uh, that is, uh, these are questions that any probably 11-year-old would know because they would have learned it in school. Are you ready? Let's do this. Three out of five. Let's do this. What American state is farthest north? Uh, Alaska. It is. Nice job. Name the three ships that sailed with Car- Cl- Christopher Columbus. Hmm. Hmm. Want to pass? I'm going to pass. Okay. That one's tough. Why do woodpeckers peck at trees? Uh, 
to build a nest. No. Mm. To get food. Oh. Who is Bert's best friend on Sesame Street? Uh, Elmo. Mm. Uh, Ernie, 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 Ernie. You know what? I'm not even going to give you a second chance on that. Damn it. Damn <laughs> it. <laughs> In which country are the Wimbledon... It's early, isn't it, Miles? In yes. which country are the Wimbledon Tennis Championships played? Uh, that's the UK. That's uh, London. Yeah, that's England. That's uh, London's not a country yet, but England, it might yeah. be one day. <laughs> I'm good at this, huh? Okay. <laughs> We're going to go back to uh, the three ships that... Uh... He hasn't gotten three yet, has he? The three ships that sailed with Christopher Columbus. Oh, man. Okay. You want me to give you one of them? And then oh. maybe it'll get you going. Is it? Wait, hold on. Let Nina? Me... The Nina? The, the, the Santa? The Nina? Yeah, the Nina and the Santa. Congratulations. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Close <you>. enough. <laughs> we don't Thank want to you. make this into a full-time job, Miles. Quite pitiful, I must say. Ah, you know what? It's early. Uh, you don't blame yourself. Uh, Alaska is the furthest north. Uh, Nina Pinta and the Santa Maria were the three ships. Woodpeckers peck at trees to get insects. Ernie, not Elmo. Ernie. Yeah. And of course, Chicken England. Ernie. Yeah. <laughs> Elmo, damn you, Elmo. All right, it's a 7 Eleven. A couple uh, with a dog that looks like a pit bull, and a, by some um, arguably could be called a pit bull are looking into what's uh, newly required of them as pet owners, and they're already overwhelmed. The ban hasn't even started yet. Savannah Sher and her partner own an American Staffordshire Terrier, uh, and uh, she's on the line. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? So tell me about your, uh, tell me about your dog. Um, my dog's name is Nori. We adopted her from a rescue in Ontario last year, um, a rescue that specializes in getting pit bull-type dogs out of Ontario and into other provinces. Um and she, uh, she's a very good dog. She's, we've never had any real problems with her before. And now we're just very stressed out because of all the things we have to do in the coming weeks to make sure that we're complying with this new bylaw. D describe your dog to me. Um, she's a relatively small dog. She's about 40 pounds, and she also had an accident when she was a puppy, so she's missing a leg. So she's a three-legged dog. She's all black, and she uh, she's very friendly and loves meeting people and... She's a pretty typical family pet, I guess. Right. Well, when you're out walking, or do you are you extra special careful? I mean, I know a, th a three-legged dog doesn't look very threatening, but uh, did you are, do you take care when you she you know she approaches children and so on? Oh, definitely. I mean, we're we're very responsible dog owners. Both my partner and myself have grown up having dogs, so because she's a relatively large breed dog, it's not like we're going to let her go over and jump on a, a kid or something like that. So. No, we're we're very careful, even though she doesn't have any history of aggression or anything like that. So uh, you've been looking into well, what you have to do under this new pit bull law, and uh, what are you finding? Um, I'm finding that there are a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, I called the city of Montreal yesterday to get more details. I've read everything I can find online in French and English, um, and it just seems like there's a lot of conflicting information out there, even from city officials. When I spoke to someone who was a representative of the city, they gave me information about what I would need to do to get that criminal record check. And then when I called the Palais de Justice, they gave me different information. It just seems like everything's happening very fast and that people don't know exactly what it is that needs to be done. And you're required to get a muzzle. What happened when you went out to look for one? 
Uh, well, a couple of places were sold out. So I'm, we were lucky enough to find one, find a store that had a muzzle in her size yesterday. But I'm really worried for other pet owners because I'm sure there are not enough muzzles currently in the city to provide for everyone who's going to need to have one on their dog by Monday. Uh, Savannah, I was reading about uh, pit bulls, and I mean, pit bulls are kind of a, a generalized term for a, 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 a bunch of different dogs, but they say that even experts are hard-pressed to say, you know, just visually, that's a pit bull. So w- you had your dog tested to figure out its genetic background. What were the results? The results were that she is she does have one of the banned breeds in her mix, which is what we suspected. Um, we had always thought that she was a, some sort of pit bull mix, but so her results were that she's an American Staffordshire mixed with a Boston Terrier, mixed with a Golden Retriever, mixed with a Sharpay. So what? she's a real, a real <laughs> mutt. <laughs> Again, can you give me that mix? It was Staffordshire Terrier, Boston Terrier, Golden Retriever, Sharpay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite a so, mix. Yeah, so all across the map. Yeah. So what are you going to do now? You sound frustrated. Yeah, I'm pretty frustrated, but honestly, I'm more worried about other people who who don't necessarily have the time to be going through this whole process. You know, it's, it's I have to go out of my way to get the special registration. I have to go out of my way. I couldn't find any muzzles in my neighborhood, so I need to go out of my way to get a muzzle. I'm just worried about people who don't have the time or are going to put in the effort to comply with the bylaw. And it's just there's just not very much time for people to do it right. So I'm yeah, I'm just worried about the people that there are dog owners across the city who won't have done what they need to do by the time this comes into into place. And what are the penalties for you if you don't do the things, get the muzzle, get the special license and so on? Um, I'm not really sure. It is everything that I've read has ranged from, you know, small fines to large fines to my dog being taken away and euthanized. So I don't really know if like if she were without a muzzle next week, I don't really know what would happen if, if we were pulled over by police or public security. Uh, thanks very much for your time. Wish you all the best of luck. Uh, give Nori a pat for us. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Okay. That's quite a mix. Now, I asked Melania to be here tonight to help me clear up some of the lies that those losers and morons are saying about me. Like that I hate women. How can I hate women when I've got the world's greatest woman right here? Yes, Donald loved women. You know, he always saying, that woman is knockout. That woman is a 10. That woman used to be a 10, but hey, she's still a 7, you know? <laughs> So that was a Taron Killen uh, doing uh, his impersonation of Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live. But there's going to be a new one this weekend. Hello, Ann Chatilla. We're so lucky. I got a text last night, Ann, from uh, from John Moore saying he'd lost his voice. Oh. And we're so fortunate that you're in town and that you can uh, do this for us today. What are you I doing am. in town, by the way? I'm here visiting family and friends. You know, I haven't been back in two years. You're kidding. That is the longest. No, I'm not kidding. And it's really like when I got here, I went... Okay, this is crazy. I have got to come back more than that. So it was the longest I had been away, and I'm so happy to be here. Has the city changed a lot since you uh, were here last time? Oh, Andrew, yeah. it has. Yeah. And I wasn't happy. No. <laughs> it was, first of all, the construction. I know we've got to do construction, but it has to be done all at once. So it's it's been hard with the construction because I'm going down a street, and I'm going, okay, so I can't take that street. But then I can't remember what street to take, so I'm 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 doing tours of Montreal. That when something should have taken me five minutes, right. it's like thirty-five minutes. Well, to that's get great. It'll make you feel like you're in Los Angeles because the traffic's exactly. bad there too. That's good. Saturday <laughs> yeah. Night Live. We know that you know the 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 real presidential race is pure entertainment. So when you make it into entertainment, it's got to be really great. What are they doing this weekend? Well, 
it, when you were watching the debate, weren't you thinking the whole time, oh, this is going to be so good on SNL this weekend. This is going to be so good. Um, it's going to be really good this weekend, but an interesting thing. Who do you think Lauren Michaels got to play Donald Trump? Now, maybe you know the answer. Do you know the answer? I do know the answer. I just saw this, and I'm actually, uh, I was initially surprised, and I thought, no, this guy's really good at mimicking people. That's exactly what I thought. When I heard it, I went, really? And then I went, oh, this is going to be great. So we can expect big ratings this weekend because Lauren Michaels has made a decision who he's going to put as the guest um, person to be Donald Trump for the entire season. So it's not just going to be this weekend. It's going to be the season. Alec Baldwin is going to be Donald Trump on the October 1st season premiere. This will be uh, debuting his Donald Trump performance. I guess he's been brushing up on it. He's going to play for the whole season. Used to be Daryl Hammond. Remember him? Yep. But now he's Colonel Sanders, right? Now he's Colonel Sanders, exactly. (laughs) So remember how Larry David last year was brought in to do Bernie Sanders and how he did it over and over for the year? That's what Alec's going to be doing. Now, Alec, if you know, of course, many people know he's hosted the show a lot of times. A record-setting 16 times since the show debuted in 1990, he has hosted. So obviously we like him on the show. He does other impressions as well, Al Pacino, Bono, uh, Tony Bennett, Marlon Brando. Have you seen any of those? Yeah, no, he's great. He really is. He really is very good. Um, In May 2016, he did this interview with Ellen DeGeneres, and he said, Uh, when he asked about Trump, he's got a big opinion. As we know, he has a lot of opinions. Uh, We don't really want a president who looks like he's been dipped in movie popcorn butter. Is that not the best? (laughs) Uh, And then in June of this year, he said uh, Trump is the first candidate made of hate. Oh, uh, Brad Pitt is keeping a low profile these days, and he was supposed to walk the red carpet last night for mm-hmm. he narrates the documentary Voyage of Time, and uh, he did not, saying in a statement he's currently focused on what he calls his family situation. So, I, think that's, I think that's wise, actually, yeah. right now. Plus, the FBI is investigating him for any child abuse because the incident that happened, the big fight that blew them up, was on an aircraft. And so if it's on an aircraft, that's now the jurisdiction of the FBI, which makes it just so much worse. I mean, to think that FBI is is involved in this. We we... also know that they have been living separate lives for a while. Uh, They have an uh, $80,000 square foot house in the Hollywood Hills. No, an 80,000 square foot house. That's what I said. You said you said eighty thousand dollars square foot house. No, no, not eighty thousand. Oh, that's that. That would be like the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Imagine how big that is. Anyway, so they had he had his wing. They had their yeah. wing. Her, she had her wing, well, and they were really living separate lives. Yeah, to, to to give you an idea, that's like yeah. the size of a Costco, basically. The, is that what the size of? A well, Costco like a, like a Bro and Martino would be about fifty thousand square feet, I think. Oh, so you're, okay. Yeah, so that's... I'm going to say it's like around that. You know, don't quote. It could be a Canadian tire. You know, <laughs> like, it's big. It's big. It's big, and they definitely weren't hanging out with one another. So they were living their separate lives for a while before she filed for divorce because apparently the the arguments were just much more frequent. She was really upset with them now. We're hearing, you know, we hear all these things, but one of them was that he was discussing their issues with his friends. But, I mean, don't you go to your friends to talk well, about Well, yeah, I know. You know. Sometimes you have to go to the guy council and uh, figure things out. Either exactly. that or you talk to a therapist, but sometimes the guy council is better. Certainly cheaper. Sometimes the guy council isn't better, but at least you're getting it <laughs> off your chest. You know, and probably. and we got to go, we got to okay. get to sports. So nice of you to join us this morning. Thank you. Let's do lunch.
I've been, I was trying to find you, Andrew, so I want to, I want to see you before I go. Okay, who's paying? Right. Uh, uh, Anne Shatilla. So, uh, James Menny's on the line. Good morning, James. Good morning, Andrew. I saw this story. I thought you'd like this. The cops in Waukesha, Wisconsin, got a call on Tuesday night about a possible domestic situation. Neighbors heard a guy screaming horrible things in his apartment. They got worried. Police got there. Knock, knock, knock. You know what was happening? No the, idea. The guy had PVR'd the presidential debate, and he was screaming at Hillary Clinton. Holy moly. On the television. <laughs> well, you know, you can tell it's the 21st century because people no longer are just yelling at their radios. They're also <laughs> yelling at other appliances as well. Uh, the Pitbull always... bylaw challenge. We knew this was going to be taken to court, but it is an important test, huh? Well, it's an important test, but it's also, man, oh, man, we knew it was going to be taken to court, but uh, not, I certainly was a, a little bit gobsmacked by how quickly the SPCA moved. And it's intriguing because they have gone to the trouble of listing off uh, the high, you know, the, the, the main uh, themes of their arguments as to why this law should be struck down. They're going into court today essentially to ask a judge, how can I put it, to put a hold button on the uh, enforcement of the bylaw until it can be, uh, until the entire issue can be argued in depth before, uh, before a judge. But what I find intriguing is, you know, and we've heard this before in terms of potential legal challenges that would be contrary to the charter, it's discriminatory against owners of pit bulls. But there's an interesting little, uh, little uh, point in there that they, they slipped in. Uh, and this is, I, I suspect this is unique to Quebec. Uh, it's an article of the Civil Code that gives, uh, the, uh, gives any animal the statute of a sentient being. They don't go into detail, but it would be intriguing to, 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 to speculate whether or not they're going to argue that by simply uh, enforcing this law, if we have abandoned pit bulls and shelters, if this leads to their automatic euthanization, that this could be, in fact, uh, uh, contributing to an extreme cruelty towards animals. Uh, all of which uh, to say uh, yet another test, not so much on whether, you know, whether the uh, Coderre administration is bullish on pit bulls or not, or this is an issue of public security. It's going to be another test of whether the Coderre administration, indeed, whether Montreal City Hall has done its homework, whether this law will stand up to any kind of scrutiny outside of the council chamber at City Hall. Uh, we saw this, uh, we saw this uh, exercise with uh, uh, the amendment of uh, P6, the bylaw that sort of ensured public security. Back in 2012, we had the demonstrations. They said, you've got to provide a route. You've got to provide, you're not allowed to wear face coverings. Every, virtually every element of these amendments were blown through the airlock by any legal challenge. And uh, it cost taxpayers a lot of money because a lot of people who were fined were in fact compensated for uh, not just their fine, but also for, for, for damages. So it's going to be interesting to see whether, you know, this law, which some people say has been written on the back of a cocktail napkin, which, which seems to be just an immediate response to immediate problem and, you know, the typical, okay, nothing to see here, folks, move on, pitfall problem solved, whether or not this will blow up in this administration's face and whether or not, you know, and if it does get struck down, what do they do next? I mean, a lot of people. I've never seen, uh, you know, apart from the Park Avenue uh, controversy yeah. under the uh, under the Gerald Trombley administration, I've never seen an issue uh, become so emotional, be be latched on by so many people. Because you know, you can talk about the usual things, potholes, whatever. But when it comes to pets, uh, clearly emotion rules the day. And it's going to be very yeah. interesting to hear what the judge has to yeah. say today. I, I'd be very surprised if we got an immediate. Um, um, uh, decision. I would suspect, however, we, we're going to have something between now and Monday. Yeah, so Jim, be, I wanted to ask you very qu quickly yeah. about this. Uh, so we see a selfie this morning of, uh, of Justin Trudeau with a, yeah. uh, a man whose uh, whose face has been sort of pixelated, yeah. so you can't really see it. 
And it turns out that this guy was on uh, the RCMP's radar for possible involvement in a kidnapping, an Al-Qaeda offshoot kidnapping back in 2013. And there he is uh, in a nice selfie some years later with with, uh, Justin Trudeau. Well, here's this is a strange little story that that La Presse has, has has broken, and it seems the guy. It was simple coincidence. Uh, Trudeau was doing a walkabout. He was out in the Calcio de Spectacle. This guy was walking along, uh, and he want, he winds up in the selfie. And of course, the question is: A, why wasn't this guy under surveillance? And the answer is very simple: because most a lot of these suspects simply aren't under surveillance because the RCMP and CSIS claim they don't have the resources. And B, what about the security detail? I mean, th- this guy got close. He had his picture taken. What Whatever. Uh, it's one, but it's one of those weird things where there are a lot of what ifs in, in terms of the encounter itself. But uh, it wasn't until this selfie uh, was seen by the security, the prime minister's security detail, they put two and two together, and they went back to visit this guy because they know apparently they know where he is. So uh, a lot of questions about you know security in general, the prime minister's security in particular, and how many other people are there out there suspected of being involved in terrorist activity who are simply walking around the car seat of spectacle and getting within selfie distance of the prime minister. Thanks, James. Always a pleasure. James Manny, a show host at CJD and uh, writes for the Montreal Gazette. You're listening to the Andrew Carter Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 530 to 9 on CJAD 800. For Hello, Dr. Mitch. Morning, sir. I know when I heard this story on CJ80 yesterday, I thought, oh, okay, here we go. Now people who are not going to get flu shots anymore because um, uh, what is it exactly that this group of scientists wants to do? This is really good, and you're right. The key message here is the flu vaccine program is going to start in November. I know it hasn't been the most effective program, but remember, some protection is better than none, number one. Number two, we know the flu can tip people with chronic underlying diseases over the edge and get them very sick. So if you have diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, you're pregnant uh, or you're taking care of people with any of the underlying things or someone with a imp- depressed immune system and you're taking care of them or around them, please don't use this as an excuse not to get vaccinated. But what the government is finally doing, and I think it's a great idea to say, listen, some years the vaccine is great, some years the vaccine isn't so good. What are we doing here? Let's stop and look at the program. Let's see if it's really making sense. You could be nasty and say it costs them $13 million a year, and so that's why they're doing it. But the reality is there's some intriguing studies lately that show that under certain circumstances, maybe vaccination may not be helping people and maybe making things worse. Now, again, not for the populations I just talked about, and that's why I don't want the wrong message to get out there. But certainly it makes sense for the scientists to look at the data. Look, there was just that information from the Centers of Disease Control in the States saying not to use the nasal uh, flu, uh, flu mist, the nasal flu vaccine, because it just doesn't work good enough. It's just not worth it. And so it makes sense to reassess what we're doing. It makes sense to use the best possible data. It makes sense to try and figure out what's best for our population. But the key message here is they're not going to come out with their recommendations till the spring of 2017. For this flu season, please don't put yourself at risk. Don't put your loved ones at risk. Don't put people around you at risk. If you're appropriately to be vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you have any doubts, ask the questions. And then we'll clear up in the next little period of time. Because we've always said this before, the vaccine should be a better vaccine, but it's not. And until we can get a better vaccine, which is something we should be pushing for, it's better than nothing. But let's, let's get this set up properly so people are best protected. Thanks very much, Dr. Mitch. A pleasure. Have, have a, good a good one. day. Dr. Mitch Shulman. 
Sports Illustrated's Michael Farber, brought to you by Dagwoods and the Large Geno Sandwich. Have your fresh toppings any way you like. Now only $7 at Dagwoods. Hey, Sean Starr. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Michael Farber. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, man, you could feel the anticipation for Game 2 of the World Cup. Yeah, maybe not so much, right? I mean, Team Canada against uh, Europe, the best of three, uh, with Game 2 tonight at the ACC in Toronto. Uh, but the standout performer, right, it's got to be Sidney Crosby. He has nine points, two more than anybody else in this tournament. And it's funny because the last time we saw him in best-on-best best hockey, he wasn't even close to being Canada's best player in Sochi. Nor was he in Vancouver, right. golden goal notwithstanding. If we had a conversation, say, oh, nine months ago, ten months ago, and we asked, is Sidney Crosby the best player in the world? We'd say, well, maybe, but that would be reflexive because we've come to think of Crosby as the best player in the world for, mm-hmm. oh, about a decade he entered the NHL after the lockout in uh, 05, 06. Uh, Was he really? Eh, Tough to tell. Um, But certainly starting in early December of last year, and and certainly in the new year of 2016, he has proven himself just that. The coaching change in Pittsburgh might have had something to do with it. Uh, Maybe it was some lost confidence that he found again, but he was a remarkable player, certainly in the second half of last season. He was the Conn Smythe winner as he won his second Stanley Cup, and and he's been brilliant here. This is the best he's played in a best-on-best, and we've seen it reflected in the players he's playing with. He's always had some chemistry with Patrice Bergeron going back to their days in North Dakota in that World Junior Tournament. But Brad Marchand yeah. uh, has been remarkable. I mean, he had a big year last year for the uh-huh. Bruins with 37 goals, but he's shown some great discipline, unlike, say, Andrew Shaw. Oh, boy. Who, uh, you know, he hit somebody from behind. That's bad. That's suspendable. But what troubled me almost as much was he decided to be the class clown after that mm-hmm. uh, that's not the way the Montreal Canadiens have done things traditionally, this classy organization, uh, nor should they want to continue uh, that down that road. And I think somebody should make that clear to Andrew Shaw. But the, this World Cup thing, uh, Mike, makes it fun for a Thursday night. You can go back and forth between Dancing with the Stars and the World Cup and this Dancing and that. Dancing with and the then, Stars. And you got, the, um, you got that uh, Duck Dynasty guy on Team Canada with yeah. the big beard. He, <laughs> they got two of what them. the heck's going on with Joe Thornton? What, what is that? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, I'm quite fond of Joe. Uh, I, I've liked him a lot because he's a very simple guy. I'll tell you a quick Joe Thornton story. The All-Star game when you're in L.A. Uh, the night before the Bruins, and Thornton was still a Bruin then, had played in Montreal. And I'm on, on seat, uh, I think it was 15D, and a full flight to L.A., and the middle seat next to me was open. I said, oh, thank goodness. And just before the door closes, Joe Thornton comes galumphing down the aisle, and that's the only way to describe Joe Thornton's walk. Plops down in the middle seat. I said, Joe, I'm, you know, claustrophobic. You know, I, oh, no problems. You don't have to switch with me. I'll probably be sleeping most of the way. And sure he did. Now, here's an all-star going to Los Angeles in a middle seat. And not a peep of complaint. Wow, that's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, Humble Canadian that's hockey cool. player. Yeah. That's that's cool. So now he get does he get a second seat for his beard now? He, he does. <laughs> and Brent Burns.
burns his beard. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> it's awful. Yeah. You can't even grow one. It's yeah. like, ugh, what is that? I'll enjoy the games tonight, Michael. All right, thanks. Friends of uh, Homa Hoodfar are gathering at Trudeau Airport right now, waiting for her to uh, come through. Uh, we're checking in with her close colleague, Marc LaFrance, at the airport right now, assistant professor of sociology and anthropology at Concordia University. Good morning, Mark. Hi there. So what's the scene like right there, right now? Well, it's pretty busy. Lots of reporters and lots of anticipation. So where are you? You're uh, waiting for her where, uh, you know, if somebody came in from internationally, uh, you're waiting in that waiting area right now? Is that where everyone is? Yes, yes. There's a there's an area that's been designated for um, Homa's return. So um, so we are we are in that area right now, uh, and uh, I just can't wait for her to get through those doors. How have these last few months have been for uh, you, and how are you feeling right now? Well, you know, I always feel a little bit guilty about talking about what it was like for me when I think about what it was like for her. Um, but there's certainly no question that it was. Uh, an extremely difficult time. I, uh, I I can't put it any other way. It was a it was a dark moment, but uh, we can let the light in now. So it's it's pretty amazing. What's the first thing you're going to say to her when you see her? I'm going to tell her how much I missed her and uh, that I love her and that I'm just so glad that she's back and that I hope she never leaves us again. What do we know about uh, her health? Uh, not very much right now, in fact. Uh, I haven't had any direct verbal contact with her, so I, I can't really hypothesize about that. All I can say is that um, it, it's, it's clear from, from having seen her on, on television and whatnot, the little bits of footage that I have seen, that you know, she, she, she doesn't look entirely herself. She looks, uh, she looks tired and she looks depleted, but I guess, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we all be yeah, I, no. if we had if we had uh, shared her fate? I'm so, actually I'm actually encouraged that she is well enough to hold a, a sort of a impromptu news conference. I, I'm extremely encouraged by it, and uh, she seems to be walking around with no problem. Um, and now she's a you know she's she's a very strong, very resilient person. So in some respects, I wouldn't have expected anything less. She is a she is just such a strong woman. Um, but uh, at the same time, after what she'd gone through, um, it's very, very admirable. Um, what, uh, how, how long uh, are you, is it going to be before you expect her to walk through those doors? Well, it should be in about 10 minutes from now. So the anticipation, I will admit, is starting to build in no small way. Uh, Mark, who is there with you? Uh, I'm here with uh, with um, Homa's nephew, uh, Sam, and we're, we're just we're so excited. So when she went uh, to um, uh, to Iran uh, last February, what was she expecting to do, and what happened to her? Uh, well, she was expecting to reconnect with with friends and um, with loved ones after the death of her husband, and uh, she just really wanted to reconnect with her with her um, with her culture and her homeland. And uh, she was very excited about the trip. Uh, she didn't expect or anticipate any problems. Uh, she wouldn't have gone if she had. And uh, she's she was uh, she was very elated actually at the prospect of going. Well, we're excited for you, and I'll let you get back to uh, waiting. I'm sure you're very happy to uh, to see her. Oh, it's it's an unbelievable feeling. Thank you for your time, uh, Mark LaFrance, assistant professor of sociology and anthropology at Concordia University, close friend of. Uh... That oil is a monster. Like the mean old dinosaurs, all that oil used to be. So for 300 million years, these old dinosaurs have been getting squeezed tighter. Deep tighter. Water Horizon. Richard Krause at the movies. Hi, Richard. Hey, Andrew. So how can they make an action movie about a uh, um, 
this kind of, uh, I know it was the worst oil spill in U.S. history, but how can you make this into a narrative that, that makes sense for people? Well, I mean, essentially what you have is an hour of setup. So you meet all the characters. You meet Mark Wahlberg character. That was his adorable little daughter talking about a high school project she was doing. Uh, then you have John Malkovich as the super mean uh, British petroleum villain of the piece, the guy that keeps saying, uh, don't worry about doing the test, just drill for oil. We're just yeah. here to make money. <laughs> that guy, yeah, yeah. so you meet all the characters, you meet yeah. all those people for about an hour, and then all hell breaks loose, and then the screen turns into a giant fireball for the next 40 minutes, and that's the movie. And, you know, as an action movie, it works well enough. It, you, it has a you-are-there kind of feel as these giant, like, gushers of, of fire and oil are, are oozing up out of the uh, ocean, blowing apart this oil rig that is, in fact, for the movie, they made one that was about three-quarter scale to the real one and blew that one up. So it's very realistic feeling. But in terms of it being actually about anything much, it's not really. It's mm -hmm. about resilience. It's about survival. It's, an, you know, to honor the 11 men who were killed on this, I suppose. But it doesn't really do any of that. What it does is show you how awful it must have been while all this was happening. And then at the end of the movie, they, they show you photographs of the 11 men who died. But frankly, it feels a little bit tacked on, so it doesn't right. really feel like an honor to, you know, that attribute to those. And there's virtually no uh, message or any kind of context about the devastating ecological consequences of the event. It is a pure action movie, and that's it. Are you excited that they made a movie about the school you went to, Miss Peregrine's Home for <laughs> Peculiar Children? I've been waiting for years for this, <laughs> to, to showcase my youth on the big screen. Uh, this is from uh, Tim Burton, and it is based on a very popular series of children's books. And it's the story of one young boy named Jake, whose grandfather had always told him these wild stories. And when the grandfather is killed in kind of a mysterious way, the young boy decides to go to this island off the, the coast of Wales and see if this home for peculiar children actually exists or not. And of course it does, but it exists in, a, in kind of an odd way. It exists in a time loop from 1943. So it's always the same day over and over Every day is the same day. Wow. Uh, then something comes along to break that sort of space-time continuum, and that's where the story comes from. And th the first hour of this movie, all the setup, is quite wonderful. Tim Burton uh, really knows how to put unforgettable images on the screen. He uses some stop-motion animation, which is really cool in this, considering that this feels like one of those big summer kind of blockbusters that is usually just, just the domain of, of computer-generated effects. There's some really kind of cool, almost feels like handmade stuff here. And then in the second hour, it's a little less so. And Burton's weaknesses as a filmmaker, i.e., he can't really tell a story, uh, are exposed. So I like the first hour a lot, the second hour a little less so. Okay, uh, Imperium, that's this, uh, that's with Harry Potter. It is. So to, to sort of fully embrace this movie, you have to get past the idea of Harry Potter as a white supremacist. What? He plays no. An, he plays an FBI agent uh, who goes deep undercover oh, okay. and tries to uh, worm his way through a number of white supremacist groups and neo-Nazis. And, you know, again, like 
the the Home for Peculiar Children film, this movie isn't really about the thing that it should be about, which is the spread of this disease of racism. Instead, it's it's a pot boiler. It's more: Will he get caught? Will will they find out who he really is? And that's fine. It's it's kind of exciting enough, but it missed an opportunity, I think, to really embrace this topic and actually be about something. Good performances, though. If you remember. Um, a guy uh, called Sam Trammell, who was on uh, True Blood. He played the guy that owned the bar on True Blood. He's great in this movie as a wealthy family man who's also a part of the extreme far right. And what's The Lovers and the Despot? The Lovers and the Despot is a, a documentary that is going to be in some theaters. It's also going to go direct to DV or to, to VOD, to Video On Demand, so you'll be able to find it no matter where you are. This is a, a crazy true story about South Korea's leading filmmaker and leading star of the 1970s who were kidnapped by Kim Jong-il taken to North Korea and forced to make movies there to try and uh, raise the profile of the North Korean film industry. <laughs> and they were there for eight years. Really? And, yeah, and before they finally escaped. So it's a love story about the two of them getting together, and they were kind of like the Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton of, of South Korea. And wow. then they get kidnapped, they disappear. They make 17 movies in just a, a handful of years while they're there, uh, and then they make a daring escape. And uh, eventually, uh, the the director ended up producing the Three Ninjas movies for uh, for Disney once they got out of uh, uh, the Korea, and uh, they went on to have kind of relatively happy, successful lives. But it is a crazy story. Listen to the Andrew Carter Morning Show live weekdays 5:30 to 9 on CJAD 800 and at CJAD.com.